0: All right, you ready to talk apologetics again? Pop quiz, how to spell apologetics. Sorry. <laughs> All right, well get your Bibles out a while. And uh, we're gonna be looking at a number of passages, uh, passage in the gospels. Now some of you probably followed this story last December 16th, there was a little girl out in California by the name of Olive, who suddenly became unresponsive, stopped breathing and they rushed her to the hospital and worked on her, but to no avail, and she was declared dead. But you, normally when that happens, um, you get in contact with the funeral director, you start planning the service, somebody calls their pastor and says, could you be available such and such a time? Funeral service, that didn't happen in this case. In fact, for the next seven days, little Olive, body was stored in the morgue while her parents and her church and people around the world cried out for God to raise her from the dead. That didn't happen. And uh, about a week later, they had a service for her and, and did bury her. Now, had God said yes to their prayer requests, it would have been a huge blessing, obviously a delight and probably a life-changing impact to her family. But except for those people and the people that prayed for her, it would not have had really any impact on the rest of the world's almost 8 billion people. It's different with Jesus. Jesus died on a cross, and that's a pretty big deal. We have a cross up here on the platform. You ever think about if Jesus only died on the cross, what the repercussions would be. That act, where he was nailed to the cross by violent men, helped no one. Saved no one. You say, wait a minute, that's not the gospel I always thought I knew. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15... 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. Let me read that again. If Christ has not been raised, in other words, if he died on the cross, that's the end of the story. That's the final chapter in the Bible. Jesus died, buried, end of story. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Every last one of them. And so it matters a great deal whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead or whether he was simply one of a long line of itinerant rabbis and itinerant military leaders that come along and Israel's history and say, ooh, I've got a plan, I've got a vision for the future. Let's pray and we're going to dive in and respond to the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Father God, thank you that we do serve um, a risen Savior, that we uh, worship and proclaim a risen Savior, and that just as the grave can't, couldn't hold him, that gives us confidence that it won't won't hold us, as we sang this morning, at least those of us who know the risen Savior. And uh, I pray, Father, just for an overwhelming delight and thankfulness in our hearts today for that truth. And also, as we think about the the people that um, we meet at the time clock every morning and check in with and people that we eat lunch with and people that we share a Christmas meal with, our family members and people that we talk over the back fence with who are not convinced of this, that we'd be just a little bit better equipped to have conversations about the centerpiece of the Christian gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray against the enemy who, who wants desperately to... Think that there's still um, a Savior that's dead, Savior that's in the grave, and who wants to perpetuate that lie, in, foisted on this world. We pray against him this morning, and pray for the unleashing of your Holy Spirit instead. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we get in, let me just let me just uh, say a couple of things about the New Testament accounts, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As I said at the beginning of this series, there are going to be, um, I'm going to talk more about things outside of scripture than I normally do. So talking about how can we have a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible about uh, that there might be a God based on what we see in the universe. That there might be a God based on the intricacy that we see in design, in whether it's in humanity or in the other uh, rest of the created world. But when we get to the resurrection, there simply is no other reference point for the resurrection of Christ apart from the four Gospels. And so you're going to want to be able to go to people and say, uh, let me show you what it says about what happened to Jesus after he was killed. And the response might be, well, I don't believe the Bible. You know, I I don't have any... um, I have mean, a sympathy for that. And I would encourage you to ask them why they wouldn't let the gospel accounts speak as historical documents. And I'll touch more on that at the very, uh, very end of the, uh, the message. So I have three questions I want to ask and try to answer this morning. <clears throat> the first one is what is a resurrection? What is a resurrection? All right, so here's a quick definition. Um, if you have the outline, here's your fill in the blanks. Uh, a person is dead, number one. Person is dead. Second, comes back to life, two, and comes back into a, in that, uh, coming back to life in a new body and lives forever. So the person is dead. That's important. So if you always were living, you really didn't come back, from, you're not. Resurrected, Person is dead, then comes back to life and comes back to life in a new body and lives forever. Therefore, that's not the same thing as resuscitation. Resuscitation is what happened to Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Uh, Jesus raised him back to life. But Lazarus came back in, a, in the old body that he died with. He just kind of was regenerated and Lazarus died again. Uh, so he, he, he didn't stay, live forever, and he didn't come back from the dead in a new, new body. So the person's dead, comes back to life in a new body, and lives forever. Uh, so Jar- Lazarus doesn't count. Jairus' daughter doesn't count. Uh, Eutychus, who fell out of a third-story window when Paul was preaching too long and died, uh, he doesn't count after Paul brought him back to life. Now, probably most of you have never heard of anyone Uh, coming back from the dead, um, even even, uh, not just people you know, but even through history. But there are a number of claims in some other religions for resurrection. And again, at the end of the message, I'll talk about one example of them. So what is a resurrection? A person is dead. They come back to life. They come back to life in a new body and they live forever. Second question, what evidence is there for Jesus' resurrection? Here's where we'll... Uh, park for most of our time in the next few minutes. What evidence is there for Jesus' resurrection? And again, unless you have someone willing to entertain the possibility anyway, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical accounts, not going to get very far. But you want to be able to uh, want to be able to point out some things to them that are at least suggestive in the in the gospel accounts. All right, what evidence is there for Jesus' resurrection? Exhibit number one eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. And a number of things under that. First of all, Jesus was believed by numerous people to be dead. Jesus was believed to be dead. And not just by people that were his supporters, but even by his adversaries. Now, let me have you open to John chapter 19, verse 34. John 19, 34. Now, if you remember the story, Jesus was hanging on a cross, and of course, that's a horrible way to die. And when they go to when a victim goes to lives too long on a cross, the soldiers are sent out to break their legs. Now the reason for this So someone is spread out on the cross and we think that the nails probably went through the wrists not the hands because there's not the bones and the tissue not strong enough in the hands to support the weight of a man as he sags so probably nail the wrist first and then they kind of bend the knees and there's a little shelf like that's nailed to the cross down that would so if the man is say five foot five foot eight Uh, they might put that shelf at about five foot six or five foot five, so his knees are bent a little bit, one foot stacked on top of the other and a spike driven down through the top of both feet into that shelf. Now what happens when they uh, want the victim to die more quickly, they, they go out and they take a mallet or something and break the victim's legs. And the reason they do that is because all of a sudden you can't push up on that little shelf to try to get more air. Because as your body is hanging on a cross, you are, you are asphyxiating. There, there's compression around your lungs, and you can't breathe. And so if you push up on that little shelf, you can catch another breath. So the soldiers came out to break the legs of Jesus and the other two that were crucified next to him. And lo and behold, they discovered that he was already dead. Now, that was important for a number of reasons, not the least of which was it was proph- prophesied In Psalm 34, that the Messiah would not have any of his bones broken. So the soldier sees that Jesus is dead, and what's he do? Remember? What's he do to Jesus' body? Spear in his side. He thrusts a spear in his side. Now, Jesus had lost an incredible amount of blood from the flogging that he had endured. It wasn't just a, 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 a flogging that left welts on his back. It would literally tear the flesh off of his back. Sometimes the internal organs were exposed because of the damage that was done by this flogging. Between that, the, the beating that he had got at the hands of the soldiers, the, the crown of thorns on his heads, these were long thorns, a lot of blood had been lost already. When the soldiers thrust the spear in there, Blood and water flowed out. Remember that? Blood and water. Where would the water come from? When a body's been damaged like that, water gathers around the, uh, sac, the membrane outside of the heart as well as outside of the lungs. And so it was evidence of the incredible trauma that Jesus had experienced. But do you, do you notice something that's not recorded in the scriptures? There's no record that Jesus flinched when the spear went in. Why? Because he was dead, very dead. So we, he was probably in uh, uh, um, this kind of, what do they call it, Hypo, hypovolemic shock and uh, probably didn't take very long at all for him to die uh, on the cross. And so, again, uh, his adversaries are doing what they can to confirm that he is dead. Really, there was no reason for the soldier to thrust a spear in him except to confirm that. And also, don't forget that there were soldiers who guarded Jesus at the tomb, right? They guarded his his tomb. And when they sealed it and set up the guard there, no doubt they looked in and checked the tomb, make sure he was there. It would be kind of pointless to guard a tomb if he was already gone. And so we have at least a couple of, re, a couple of uh, times where soldiers are giving evidence Jesus is dead. He, he's gone for good. So exhibit number one, eyewitness testimony and specifically adversaries believed that Jesus was dead, but also his supporters. So Joseph of Arimathea, one of his followers, goes to Pilate and says, can I have the body? Pilate says, oh, he's dead already. Yep, he's dead already. Sure, you can take the body. Now, I I went through in my mind what all took place from the time that uh, that, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph tried to get the body and put it before, from that time until they got him into the tomb. And I figured minimum two hours. They have to get a ladder to get up. They have to pry these massive six to 12-inch spikes out of Jesus' wrists and out of the wood. Uh, They have to take the spike out of his feet, and these two men have to navigate his body down off of the cross. They're going to be re- very respectful. not just going to let the body fall. It's dead weight. They get him down off the cross. The two of them carry Jesus to a nearby tomb. We don't know how far it was. So let's say it, it could have been 60 yards. It could have been a quarter mile. It's going to take a while to get there. When they get him to the tomb, they wrap him in linen cloths head to toe. And they put these 75 pounds of spices on his body to offset the smell of the decaying corpse. Two hours minimum. Now these were men who grew up in the ancient world very familiar with death. Most everybody was involved in agriculture to one degree or another, had animals. They, they, they knew the life cycle. They knew when someone, something was dead and they knew when something was alive. The families were close and uh, life expectancy much shorter back then and so it would have been normal for children to be growing up in a family, seeing grandpa and grandma die off quickly, aunts and uncles, they would have been around death, they would have been exposed to death. They knew what death looked like. So if these two men handled Jesus' body for two hours, I think they would be pretty sure that Jesus was in fact dead. These, were, these are two men who desperately wanted Jesus to be alive but they put him in the tomb confident that he was dead it's amazing how quickly the body starts to cool off and so there's no doubt that there was already cooling taking place in the body Jesus was believed both by adversaries and by his supporters to be dead that's exhibit number one point one all right second eyewitness issue Jesus body went missing Jesus body was missing and it went missing from a tomb that had been sealed. So presumably they put wax at the joint where the stone was in front of the tomb, wax at the joint, somebody in authority's signet ring went in the soft wax and then it hardened. And then there was a guard around the tomb to make sure nobody stole the body because they knew that Jesus had said while he was alive that he was going to raise, be raised in the third day and they're gonna, we're gonna make sure that the disciples don't steal his body and then claim that. Yet Jesus went missing from this tomb. And again, the adversaries agreed to this. Look at Matthew chapter 28. His adversaries agreed that Jesus' body was missing. 28, beginning of verse 11. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. What had happened? Body's gone. It's gone missing. They were there, but it somehow It's not in the tomb anymore. A meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole the body. Now now note, note that. They're not saying go out and try to find the body. They're not looking for a missing body. They simply want them to say that the disciples stole the body. Where's the inquiry? Where's the investigation? If you really believe that that's what happened, why aren't soldiers being dispatched, why aren't police being dispatched to find the body and track it down? If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble because given the responsibility they were given and having failed at it, literally their lives were on the line. They were going to be executed unless they could come up with some way of explaining what had happened. The end of the... uh, The end of verse 15, their story spread widely among the Jews and they still tell it today. So Jesus' body went missing and even the adversaries, even his adversaries agreed that the body is is nowhere to be found. And of course, supporters saw the empty tomb as well. Mary Magdalene, uh, the other Mary, Salome, Joanna, Peter, John, all of these um, followers of Jesus saw the empty tomb. Tomb. So there's confirmation that the body was missing. To this day, there has never been anyone who has produced a body saying, We think this is Jesus' body. They're talking about a shroud that Jesus' body might have been covered with, but nobody has ever produced a body. So that's the second piece of eyewitness data. Third, Jesus is seen alive in a new body, again, by eyewitnesses. A couple of women. This is from John 20, 14 to 18. I'm not going to have us look at all these texts. If you have a uh, copy of the sermon notes, I put a bunch of them in there so that you don't have to try to jot them down. So uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary saw Jesus at the tomb. Um, By the way, one of the main arguments that is made by non-believers, especially scholars... Uh, about uh, the whole idea of Jesus coming back from the dead is that the early Christians fabricated this. They wanted to believe it. Um, they, They wanted to inflate Jesus' notoriety. And so they talked about him rising from the dead even though it didn't happen. And so that the New Testament itself, especially the gospel accounts, are an attempt to write what is called a hagiography. A hagiography is an inflated story about somebody that you admire. There's a lot of lies in it, but, but it makes the person look better. And so that's the belief that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are hagiographies. Here's a problem. If the early church really wanted to persuade people that Jesus had risen from the dead, They made a fundamental blunder in having the women be the first witnesses, the first eyewitnesses to the fact. Why? Even though Judaism treated women far better than the pagan peoples around them, it still wasn't great. A Jewish man would typically pray, I I thank God that I'm I'm not born a slave or a woman. A woman's testimony was not accepted in a Jewish court of law. And so, for example, if she had witnessed a homicide and there was no other witness, she, her, her testimony was not admit, admissible in court. She was not to be believed. So if this is nothing but an inflated uh, package pack, pack of lies, they would have gotten men. They would have written in men were the first ones to see that Jesus Was raised from the dead but it is women first and foremost and then we of course we have peter we have john we have the unnamed disciples walking between jerusalem and emmaus you remember that story and jesus appeared beside them they didn't recognize him remember he's got a glorified body which there's some continuity between the old body and the new body but probably looks a little different and he's talking with them and and they're downcast and uh, but after he left he just vanished they realized oh that was Jesus and then Jesus appears to the 12 and then he appears to over 500 eyewitnesses get this first Corinthians chapter 15 first Corinthians 15 uh, beginning of verse 6 Paul says, uh, after that, Jesus was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. This is a group gathering. Most of whom are still alive. In other words, you can check out whether or not these witnesses uh, still say they saw him. Most of whom are still alive, though some have di- excuse me, died. And then he was seen by James and later by the apostles, just as James, Jesus' half brother. So by my count, we're roughly in the neighborhood of 514 minimum, 514 witnesses that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. So we have two pieces of eyewitness testimony that, or three, that Jesus was believed to be dead by eyewitnesses. His body was concluded, his body was missing and he was then seen alive in this new body. That's all under exhibit number one, eyewitness testimony. Exhibit number two, the eyewitnesses that did see all this stuff didn't believe it at first. Again, if you were going to try to make a compelling argument, a false argument, that Jesus rose from the dead, wouldn't you portray all of his supporters believing before it actually happened that it was going to happen? And yet the testament throughout these historical documents is they didn't believe a word of it. So Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, and he said this on about three different occasions, it's recorded. Jesus says, I'm going to be turned over to the Jewish leaders. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to be raised from the dead after the third day. When that happened in Matthew chapter 6, Peter pulled Jesus aside and he said, may it never be. It's not going to happen to you. Now, we would think that's a normal response, except for the fact that Jesus had already said he's going to come back from the dead. He might say, I'm I'm not excited to hear you're going to be killed, but I'm excited to hear you're going to come back from the dead. He didn't. Chapter 17 of Matthew, same thing occurred with the disciples, and it says that that they were grieved, they were sad because he's going to die. You would think that would be tempered at least a little bit, by the information that he was going to rise again if they actually believed that what he was saying was true. And we we could go on and on. Jesus rose from the dead. He talks to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says that they were sad. They said, oh, we thought that this guy was going to be the, the deliverer of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, and save us, but alas, he's dead. They didn't believe he was coming back. Remember Thomas? Thomas hadn't been there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples the first time, and he says to the disciples that guys that he's worked with for three years and that he should trust, well, I'm not going to believe he's alive unless I see him and put my fingers in his side and in his hands. None of Jesus' supporters expected him to come back from the dead. They were astonished by the resurrection. I think that's exhibit number two. And I think that's pretty significant. That they didn't believe it was going to happen. Look at John chapter 20, verse eight and nine. John 20, uh, verse eight says, then the disciple who had reached the tomb, this is, this is uh, John, the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. So they went through all these three years of ministry with Jesus, nobody believing, even though he'd said it repeatedly, nobody believing that Jesus actually was gonna come back to life once he was dead. That's exhibit two. The eyewitnesses were astonished by the resurrection. Here's exhibit three. The eyewitnesses went from being wimps, to being world changers. You remember what happened the night that Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane? So they're praying, everybody's praying there, the disciples are having a tough time staying awake, and all of a sudden there's a clatter coming up the hill, and there's torches they see, and there are police officers and soldiers, the clatter of armor and weapons, and they're there to arrest Jesus. And when they did, do you remember what happened with all the disciples? They all ran away. They all ran away, despite the fact that Peter had very brazenly pulled his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, try to defend Jesus and keep him from being arrested. But then when Jesus was actually arrested, Peter ran away with the rest. Despite the fact that just earlier at dinner, Peter had told Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. Not only was he not ready to die with Jesus, he wasn't even ready to go to prison with him. So he runs away, all the disciples run away, James, John, the lot of them. But Peter's concerned about what's happening, so he follows where Jesus has been taken for interrogation, and he's at the courtyard outside of where uh, Jesus is being questioned, and he's warming himself by the fire, and there are other people there, and they're having conversations, and they recognize he's got a he's got a Galilean accent. And they're like, are you with him? Pretty sure you are. No, 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 no. I, I I know you are. I saw you with him earlier. And he curses. He calls down a curse on himself to try to convince them that he doesn't know Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. They're all wimps. And yet, when we turn to the book of Acts, just a few chapters later, everything changes. In fact, there's a kind of faith in a now resurrected Savior that makes them extraordinarily bold. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They've been preaching. Uh, the gospel publicly a guy the very guy who ran away he and John are out there preaching the gospel uh, in this in the city streets Uh, they're called in they're in prison they're examined they're let go they're told never again again to preach about Jesus they go back they continue preaching about Jesus they're called in again this time they're flogged and verse 41 Acts chapter 5 The apostles left the high council, after they'd been flogged, they left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. Judas had gone out and hung himself. There were 11 disciples left. And of those 11, 10 of them were murdered Not because they happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, but because they happened to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the then known world. Matthew, Thomas, Peter. In fact, Peter was crucified like his savior. Well, not like his savior. He was so ashamed to be crucified like his savior. He asked if they would crucify him upside down. What happened to these scaredy-cats? Jesus rose from the dead, and it changed them. There's the only explanation for the rapid growth of Christianity and the transformation of those who carried it to far-flung nations, was that something very, very unusual happened. So why does the resurrection really matter? Last question. Why does the resurrection really matter? Go Back to that verse we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In other words, in, in order for Jesus to help, in order for Jesus to save, in order for Jesus to change someone, Jesus' cross needs a resurrection. It's as if the cross, uh, the crucifixion, was a, uh, a, you know, a powerful, liquid, uh, cooled engine. And all of the power that's needed uh, to get a person from where they're at to a, another destination sits there rumbling within the engine block. But unless you get a drive shaft, a transmission, a set of wheels, and some sort of cooling system, and a wiring system, that engine isn't gonna do anything for anybody. And the engine in this case is the crucifixion. But the ability to get that power Transfer somebody from here to here. Resurrection. Unless Jesus is resurrected, our faith is useless. And we're still guilty of our sins. That's number one. No resurrection, no salvation. Number two, no resurrection, no divine intercession. Let me have you turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Romans 8, 34. <clears throat> Who then will condemn us, Paul asks. No one. For Christ, talking about Christians. Who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And if he stopped there, this wouldn't be as significant. But he goes on to say pleading for us or making intercession for us. Don't get the idea that Jesus is there begging God to be merciful and God doesn't want to be merciful for us, to us. But Jesus is sitting there at the right hand, crucified, the marks still in his hands, the marks still in his sides, as, rem- as a reminder that <laughs> Jesus paid it all. Don't you love that song? Jesus paid it all. He sits there interceding for us he's he's our great high priest there is only one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus and if he wasn't raised from the dead he could not sit there and make intercession for the likes of people like us and chan buddhism buddhism this is a variation of buddhism that surfaced in china originally and then later in japan this story is told about a Buddhist monk by the name of Pahua. Now, Buddhist. Uh, if you've ever been to Southeast Asia, monks walk around the streets. They have a little bell uh, to tell people they're coming. They have little bowls, and they beg for rice or other small gifts. It's the only way they live. And the story goes that Pahua was wandering around the streets crying out, give me a robe, give me a robe. He wasn't begging for food. He was begging for a robe. And people would take their robes off and they would offer them to Pahua and he would reject every one of them until a fellow monk showed up one day, uh, uh, one hour. His name was Linji and instead of rice or money, he had with him a coffin. And Pahua began to drag this coffin around and saying, Master Linji has given me a robe and I'm going to the south gate for my transformation, which meant to die. And the people were interested in this, and so they flocked around. They went to the south gate, but he never showed up. They went to the south gate the next day, and he didn't show up. They went to the south gate the third day, and he didn't show up. And so by now, people figured he was crying wolf. And so the fourth day, no one tried to follow him. But he went outside the city limits that day with his coffin. And when a traveler came by, he enlisted the man's help. He climbed into the coffin and he had the man nail the lid shut word spread that that Puhua was in the coffin and the people flocked again to the uh, outside the city walls to see what happened and they pried the lid up off the coffin and he was gone and as the people looked around and as they listened they heard the tinkling of a bell high in the sky. And the conclusion was that Pahua had raised from the dead. But was the sound of the handbell seemingly from above evidence that Pahua had even died? The last man to see him alive was this traveler who nailed the lid shut, but no one saw him dead. Had anyone seen him raised to life? No. Had anybody seen him alive after he left the coffin? No. Who saw him ringing the bell? No one. And yet this is what, Paul, uh, or what uh, Luke says in Acts chapter 1 about the record of Jesus and his resurrection. One, two, and three. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. In other words, there was no kind of spiritual resurrection. Jesus showed himself. He, he invited Thomas to feel his hands and put his hands in his side. Again and again and again, Jesus was proving, giving evidence, I am alive. People saw me dead. And now you see me alive. Now, if you talk to someone about the resurrection and invite them to read the things in the final chapters of each of the gospel accounts, and they say, I don't believe the Bible, I would urge you to ask them the question, why would you dismiss these four books as possible historical accounts? Unless there's a, a bias. You wouldn't reject out of hand other historical books that claim to speak about an important figure in history or important events in history. And these are the only historical documents that we have about the life and times of Jesus. We have small notations in Josephus' history of the Jewish wars. We have small notations in Tacitus' history, just a a line or so. We have small mentions by Emperor Trajan and Emperor Hadrian, but we don't have any accounts. And they say, well. These are accounts written by his supporters. Why would we trust him? Well, that's true down through history. People who are not interested in someone are not going to write an account about that someone. But people who are interested in that someone would write an account about it. Why would you rule out of hand the possibility that these are historical documents without even reading them? J. Warner Wallace was a detective in California an atheist, his specialty was solving cold case homicides. And so homicides that had been unsolved for 20, 30 years, he would be brought in to see if he could figure out what happened. And Wallace was trained in forensic testimony analysis or statement analysis. In other words, you bring someone in, either a suspect or a potential eyewitness, and you take a statement from them. And he had learned how to read these statements by virtue of the pronouns that they used or how they either compressed chronology or expanded it. They talked about the time, the, the tenses that they used with their verbs. And he could determine simply by those statements, typically who, who had committed the crime or had this person committed the crime or what they knew about it or perhaps even the time of the crime. Wallace had been invited over and over by a fellow police officer to go to church with him, and he refused every time. This went on for months, and finally, just to get the guy off of his back, he agreed to go to church. And he was intrigued by a couple of things the pastor said, namely that Jesus was a wise man and that he had some wise things to say about relationships, things like relationships and marriage. And so a week later, he went out and bought himself a Bible. And he started with the four gospels, and as he read, he thought, "Wow, these sound like eyewitness accounts, not just fabricated myths." And some of you have probably read his book called "Cold Case Christianity." He eventually, but through reading the gospels, became a follower of Jesus Christ. And don't, don't, don't be so quick to close the Bible when your friend says, I don't, I don't believe that those are historical documents. At least say, would you give it a chance? Because if they won't, that simply reveals the bias. And if they take you up on it, God's spirit, God's word can do the rest. Father, thank you for the book that tells us about the most amazing thing that ever took place in the history of the world that a man who lived, died, actually came back to life. And because he did, we too can look for the hope of coming back to life. And I think about the people that we know who don't know you and who maybe are hoping that there will be a new life for them someday, maybe based on their own efforts. That we'd love them enough to tell them enough about the one who loved them enough to die for them and come back to life and offer them a resurrection as well. In Jesus' name.